This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what now? Well, Danny, we're talking today about the war on things that work. So the left, in the name of climate change, in the name of saving the planet, is forcing us to give up everything in our arsenal of conveniences. They want to get rid of our gas-powered cars. They want us to get rid of our gas-powered stoves. They want us to get rid of our gas-powered lawnmowers. They want to make refrigerators more expensive. They want to make air conditioning more expensive. They want to make heat more expensive. Uh, All in the name of saving the planet. And all the while not doing that themselves, we should add. <laughs> because, of course, hypocrisy is the sine qua non of being, a, of being an environmental political lecturer in these, in these times. So I, I told Mark I wanted to start out because I have, this, I have this tiny sort of parallel rant. Those of you who know me know I live in Fairfax County in Virginia. And, uh, and Fairfax County is, is, is obviously dominated and has been for many years by Democrats, but it's not insane. It's still Virginia. And so, you know, we, we only have to separate our recyclables and our trash. We don't have to, as, it, as some do in some parts of our country and overseas, have four separate uh, kinds of rubbish, paper, glass, plastic, this, that, and the other thing, you know. Uh, so I got, a, I got a flyer from Fairfax County informing, not not me to be fair, but informing all of us, uh, all of us peons who don't know what we're doing, that we're not using our recycling properly because you're not supposed to put glass in the recycling. Okay, no glass, so no bottles at all. You're not supposed to put those plastic containers that, you know, your tomatoes and your fruit come in because that doesn't work. And tomatoes too. Uh, and, and the tomatoes or the potatoes. Um, <laughs> You're not supposed to put the plastic bags that they're charging for you for at the supermarket. No, no, no. Keep those and take them back to the supermarket because they will be environmentally dealt with. I don't believe that for a second, by the way. Oh, also paper. You can put some paper in, but if you shred paper, for example, you know how you get like credit card offers in the mail? You should probably shred those up or rip those up. Otherwise, someone can fish them out of your trash and apply for a credit card in your name. And by the way, that did happen to me, so don't do that. So, you know, you shred it, but don't put shredded paper into your recycling because that clogs up the gears of the recycling. I'm sitting there and I'm looking at our recycling, trying to figure out what the hell am I allowed to put in here? I, oh, oh, also Starbucks, the stuff you get from Starbucks or, you know, whatever takeout restaurant you're going to, you get those helpful environmental plastic cups or those paper cups. You can't put those in either. I like. Can you put your paper straws in? <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But basically now, you can't put anything into the recycling. And I feel like this very neatly summarizes the entire movement that we now have being imposed on us, which is you must do as we say. Don't do this. Do do that. What's the real impact? We have no idea. We just like telling you what to do. The brave new world is going to be very complicated. Too complicated for me to follow. And there's so what we what we have going here is a movement of a few elites 
in a distant capital telling the rest of us how to live our lives, as Ronald Reagan famously said. And the, the law of unintended consequences follows them because a few people sitting around a conference room in the EPA or in the, or in the Roosevelt Room in the White House can't think through all the possible consequences of their policies. So for example, I've just picked up the, uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, this morning and there's a story today. So we're going to get we're going to be forced by the 2030s because the Biden goal is to have a have a fossil free world. And he said in the State of the Union, address, we're going to need fossil fuels for another decade. Right. <laughs> Which is like elicited guffaws from it like that. <laughs> he it's doesn't like, care. Exactly. <laughs> He's not but, got another decade. But but I mean, you know, so, OK, so in the 2030s, we're going to be fossil fuel free. Right. And so we got to get rid of all these things super quick. So we're going to get rid of our gas-powered cars and have electric cars. And this is in the name of the of protecting the planet, right? Here's here's the Wall Street Journal on EV makers confront the nickel pickle. Here's let me just read this to you. In the electric vehicle business, the quandary is known as the nickel pickle. To make batteries for EVs, companies need to mine and refine large amounts of nickel. The process of getting the mineral out of the ground and turning it into battery rhetoric substances, though, is particularly environmentally unfriendly. Reaching the nickel means cutting down swaths of rainforest. Refining it is a carbon-intensive process that involves extreme heat and high pressure, producing waste slurry that's hard to dispose of. And I think in Indonesia, they actually passed a law that allows them to dump it in the ocean. So all these people complaining about microplastics in the ocean, they're dumping nickel slurry into the ocean in Indonesia to make electric batteries for your electric cars. And then, oh, by the way, who's who controls the production of all these things? China. China controls something like 85 percent of the of the production of the components for electric batteries. And as far as I know, Danny, I may, I may be wrong, but I don't believe there are any electric earth movers yet. So, so wind and solar powered earth movers are not a thing. So that means all of this is done by giant machines emitting tons of pollutants and fossil fuel produced carbon into the environment. Tesla said in April report that EVs cause more emissions during the manufacturing process than conventional vehicles due to the process of extracting and refining minerals. So you're we're causing environmental catastrophes. And in, in, in pour, pouring slurry into the oceans, strip mining. And by the way, we're, we're going to have we have rare earths here in America. We're not allowed to mine for them. Why? Please, Why is that? Why? Oh, so we're going to go rape the third world, right? We're <laughs> no, going to no. just we're, we're going to let the Chinese rape the third world. <laughs> oh, sorry. We're going to let the Chinese rape the third world and, tra- and and strip mine them, and we'll just pay the Chinese for it and be dependent on China for strip mining the third world for us in order to create. These cars, which, by the way, statistic Bjorn Lomberg told me the other day, nine out of 10 electric car owners, it's their second car. Of course, because your first car is the one that you need to, you know, be reliable and get to places. Exactly. Those statistics are born out everywhere. Nobody in the world, practically, who depends on an electric car to serve for all of their driving needs. This is is insanity. Okay, so wait. Uh, so everybody, everybody who reads our Substack also at at the end of it gets our uh, what we call our show notes, right? Which is the research that our producer Clara puts together for us. So I just I just want to share a few snippets from this week's research for with everybody, and one, we'll get to our guest very shortly. And we actually don't talk that much with him about the impact of of electric vehicles. So we're we're talking about a couple other uh, a couple of other elements of the war on fun. But just let me pull a couple out of the uh, our stats that we have this week. So. Uh, If the U.S. had 10% more gasoline cars in 2020, 
870 more people would have died each year from the air pollution. If the U.S. had 10% more electric vehicles, 1,617 more people would have died every year. So almost twice as many. Oh, by the way, that, that's, from, that's from one set of research. Here's another bit of research. Almost all electrical vehicle subsidies go to the wealthiest 20%. What a surprise that is to me. Wait, there's more. There's just great stuff here, too. All of those battery parts uh, and mining that Mark was talking about, the in critical elements of that are lithium, cobalt, copper, nickel, and aluminum. Last year, the price of lithium and cobalt more than doubled. Copper, nickel, and aluminum rose by 25 to 40 percent. Lithium prices have already risen by 2.5 percent. Yes. Oh, and just the last little detail. 91% of the local pollution damages from driving an electric vehicle are exported to other states. I mean, <laughs> this is it's 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 as if we're through the looking glass. Just just to, to continue the fun. Mark is on, Mark is on randomatic with me. This is a, this is a Washington me. Post story. It says when it this is about about the ba car batteries. When it comes to processing, there's one major player, China, which handles more than half of the minerals critical to EV batteries. These elements aren't only only used to power EVs; they also appear in everything from building materials to toys. But as demand for EV components soars, so could dependence on China's refining infrastructure. Beijing controls the lion's share of the world's processing infrastructure. Seventy-five percent of the world's battery production capacity according to International Energy Agency. But there may soon be a new supplier. Afghanistan holds untapped lithium that may rival the world's largest known reserves. And China has expressed interest in working with the Taliban government to tap those reserves. You, you would th we, didn't we a little while ago have a friendly government in Afghanistan that could have uh, cooperated with us? And we for the for the <laughs> twenty years mark that we were in Afghanistan, just as an aside, we always knew this because there had been critically important studies done that showed that Afghanistan had enormous mineral wealth that wasn't being exploited, and we sat on our asses and taught the Afghans about inclusion and diversity for the last twenty years while elevating the Taliban and al-Qaeda we to power. We were trying it out on and them doing, first. Right, exactly. <laughs> Before and we tried it in American the government away, and the Chinese are coming in and taking it over. Honestly, if you had to write an insane script, nobody would accept this. We're a country run by idiots. Well, but, but fact-free idiots. I mean, none of this stuff fucking works. Okay, enough of our ranting. Now we need, a, <laughs> now we need our guest to, to rant. rant. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so Noah Rothman hasn't been with us before. Mark and I are huge fans of his work. Um, he is a senior writer at National Review, former MSNBC commentator, and he was the associate editor for Commentary Magazine. I'm sure everybody knows his pieces. He is the author of a book called The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun. Here's our interview. Noah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you on for the first time, hope first of many. So you have a great article in National Review called The War on Things That Work, and you write that the left is waging a crusade against convenience, an assault on comparative advantage, and a war on things that work. Tell us what you mean. Well, I think everybody probably recalls the kerfuffle around the uh, efforts by the uh, Consumer Bureau and uh, federal level to uh, seek the imposition of a ban on natural gas hookups and new construction that had been making its way through legislators in California and New York. And uh, there was a, a big backlash to that, the suggestion being that it had all been made up, that it was culture warring by the right, 
And only subsequently, after that, con- uh, after that uh, real backlash died down, did the executors of that, uh, that line of thinking admit to, yeah, not only is this happening, and it's good that it's happening. You see that when it comes to a lot of appliances, daily appliances that make life convenient and make life work, um, that there's an attack on a lot of these, uh, these appliances for your own benefit, not just gas stoves, but air conditioners, for example. The uh, EPA is attempting to make refrigerants a little bit more expensive uh, at the local level, municipal level, and at the state level in some states, there's an effort to uh, retire the, the two-stroke combustion engine, which you find in a lot of lawn care equipment. Uh, in exchange, they would substitute electric equipment, which is efficient if you're trying to cover a half-acre plot or so. But if you sit on a little bit more land than that, you're going to find that anything that isn't corded or gas-powered isn't going to get the job done. It's going to demand a lot more money from you, a lot more time. You can see this in efficiency standards in dishwashers, the effort to remove from the consumer's hands disposable plastic bags that you would get at a, uh, at a big box shop, for example. All of this is done in the name of environmental protection. But its effects on the environment are minimal, negligible, barely registered when you actually look at the data. The effect primarily is to make your life a little bit less convenient, a little bit more expensive, And ultimately, it boils down to my conclusion that a particular segment of the technocratic left is attempting to impose on you a lifestyle brand, one to which they subscribe, but you may not. But you're not going to be allowed to have have any choice in in this matter. This is something that's going to be done to you for your own good and for the benefit of the planet, ostensibly. But in general, it's just a way to make your life a little bit more difficult in the name of an idea that's promulgated on the left that has very little substance to it. So I want to get into the implications of this switchover from the combustion engine to battery-fueled this, that, and the other thing. But first, I want to just, for the listening pleasure of our audience, run through the litany of things that people are trying to take away from you. So you started with a gas stove, your lawnmower, your weed whacker, your uh, hedge trimmer, your air conditioning, your gas-powered water heater, your gas-powered home heating. What else is everybody trying to take away from us? I mean, you're doing most of it. So if you're going to eliminate natural gas hookups from new construction, then you're eliminating all natural gas-powered equipment. So you said your water heater and your gas stove, for example, but yeah, also your furnace. Uh, and talked about your AC, what they want to replace that with are something called heat pumps, uh, which are effective that they do what they're supposed to do. Although if you live in a colder climate, you're going to have to use a conventional furnace to supplement your heat. However, they're going to require a lot more maintenance and a lot more repair and usually faster uh, replacement time, in part because they don't get a season off. They're running constantly all year long. Uh, you could say much the same for, as you said, dishwashers, which is just an, they, they apply new efficiency standards. Efficiency, by the way, has become a euphemism for using fewer inputs, water, air, fuel, oil, what have you, rather than doing the job efficiently. In fact, they don't do the job efficiently. Efficiency no longer means efficiency. It just means you get to use fewer inputs. Um, all the two-stroke equipment that you have in, for example, in places like Marin County, where in particular there's an attack on leaf blowers. Leaf blowers as a quality of life issue has become something of a fixation in the progressive-dominated suburbs. 
And maybe what works in Marin County works in Marin County, but it doesn't necessarily work in any of the places that are outside the exurban radius around major metropolitan areas in which contributors to USA Today and the New York Times reside. Um, my particular favorite is the dissolving prescriptions around uh, plastic straw. The plastic straw ban was conceived as, uh, and I kid you not, conceived as a result of a viral video that a Texas A&M University researcher uh, published of a sea turtle, sad sea turtle, with a plastic straw lodged in its nostril. And that was a very sad video. But public policy should not be made on the basis of very sad videos. It took, it, took, it, it took off. Another reason to ban TikTok. <laughs> right. It took off as a result of this video, and it became, it became a cause celeb to replace these things with paper straws, which do not work. They dissolve into a cloud of particulate in your drink and your mouth and make life just a little bit more annoying. They're subsequently disappearing uh, slowly. You can see it perceptibly, though. Um, but only as a result of this failed experiment that you were drafted into participating in. A lot of people could have foreseen this had any had any thought been applied to it, but it wasn't a thoughtful enterprise. It was a knee-jerk response to an emotional affect. And you see this across the spectrum when it comes to the, the uh, efforts to prescribe a lot of access to these tools that consumer preference should have no play in the matter. And a lot of the pushback that I got from this is that, well, would you like lead in your gasoline and in your paint? Uh, no, not necessarily. And there's quite a lot of consumer uh, protection uh, work that has been done in the last half century that we should be very you know, grateful for and fond of. But if you have to go back a half century to justify all this social engineering, you don't actually have a case for the social engineering. Right. Now, I, I mean, that's absolutely true. I just wanted to follow up for a second because uh, Marin County is not the only place. Didn't the District of Columbia also ban the leaf blowers? Oh, yeah. No, no. I was just using that as an example. It's very... It's, it's, um, prevalent, primarily in places where you have uh, smaller size lots, right. um, prog progressive-dominated places with smaller lots just outside major American metropolitan areas. Right, but I mean, all right, let's not even talk about the negligible impact on the environment. Let's not even talk about, you know, what the implications are of, of the replacements for the environment. Let's just talk about the minority-owned businesses that tend to be in the business of leaf blowing and lawn mowing and hedge trimming and weed whacking. These guys are basically being mandated by the nanny state or the nanny local state or the nanny federal state to go out and trash everything that they've invested in over the last X number of years in order to buy these newer, almost consistently much more expensive things. I mean, isn't there an element of racism here? Well, I think there's a fair amount. No, I think that's right. I think yeah. there's a fair amount of chauvinism there, uh, in part because, yes, if you're having, if you're a landscape, uh, landscaping crew, for example, that employs five or six different people, and you have to spend more on your equipment, and uh, it can take a lot more time to get the job done, but you can afford to pay fewer workers. Sure, that just makes sense, right? Um, one of the people that I quote in this piece, um, Michael Shapiro, who authored a op-ed for the Press Democrat in Southern California talked about, you know, presented himself as a savior of migrant workers because these things, they operate just inches from their lungs and their ears and they're kicking up dust and mold and fecal matter. And it's really bad for the for the poor, uh, marginalized migrant workers who do this, this labor, which is an admission against interest on his part. 
But if you scratch a little bit deeper, if he goes into this in the piece, what he's really after is the quality of life in his neighborhood where he wants to, quote, hear ourselves think and listen to birds sing and enjoy the sound of neighbors playing Mozart. His concern is not for the poor migrant workers. He's using them as a tool, an avatar to advance a narrative that would provide him with a better quality of life, even at the expense of theirs. So you point out that one of the things the EPA is doing is prohibiting hydrofluorocarbons with global warming potential, which we need for air conditioners and refrigerators. So if we have global warming, aren't we going to need more cheaper air conditioners, not fewer, more expensive air conditioners? It seems to be counterintuitive. I mean, what, this is one of the problems you have with the, with the left when it comes to climate change, which is that they're for everything that you know, that will destroy our economy and destroy our lives in the effort to stop the planet from warming when the real, as Bjorn Lomberg, who we had on this podcast to talk about this uh, a a while back, he points out that actual adaptation and mitigation is the way to go. And, you know, it's relatively cheap to solve the problem of a warming planet by giving people air conditioning because air conditioning is not expensive. It's a very simple uh, adaptation. And yet they want to make air conditioning more expensive and less accessible, especially for those uh, on the lower end of the income spectrum. So the rich people will have their AC, but poor people will have to suffer climate change. That's exactly right. I mean, most of the folks who are doing a lot of the really uh, vehement activism on this for this sort of thing aren't going to feel it. They're not going to feel it in their wallets. They're certainly not going to feel it in their quality of life. But you certainly will. The attack on natural gas is in particular egregious insofar as natural gas represented a bridge fuel, quote unquote, to a, uh, a, in a, a lower emissions future because it, burning it produces far fewer uh, heat trapping emissions than other fossil fuels. But that's not good enough for a particular sort of activist who wants to eliminate fossil fuels from the energy mix yesterday. Not, not tomorrow, not in 2030, but absolutely right now, come hell or high water, regardless of what the consequences are. Um, it is a myopic pursuit on their part. Um, but it's also, it, it reduces consumer demand, consumer preference to an irritation, which is sort of where you get to ultimately if you adopt the progressive technocratic outlook, that ultimately the people become an obstacle to the better future that you envision for the public. It's in part why the technocratic, the, the the hit on tech, the technocratic mentality is that they love the public but hate people. And there's a lot of truth to that because the public doesn't necessarily agree with their prescriptions for what constitutes a better future for them, even if it's more expensive, even if it's less convenient. And their opposition to it renders them hidebound and uh, myopic and an obstacle to be dispensed with. Uh, and I think you see quite a lot of that in this particular sort of uh, this advocacy that I talk about in this piece. Uh, which really has abs- not just disregard for, but contempt for consumers and their preference for efficiency and uh, and uh, making sure that the cost of their daily appliances isn't so egregious and, and, and absorbs so much of their income that they can't actually afford it. It's an all it's a it's an all consuming multi multi axis attack on the dignity of personal choice. And yes, eventually that will create and foment a backlash. We saw some of it with the the, the uh, rejection of gas stoves. But even progressives agree with some of the arguments in favor of things like gas ranges, not just because they're superior in a lot of ways to electric ranges. They do things that electric ranges cannot, like braise or fry or uh, or use if you use a wok for cultural cuisine. Um, but they're uh, also less expensive to operate. 
And it's the sort of thing that they agree with and understand because in part places like Palo Alto carve out exemptions for celebrity chefs so that the uh, the upper crust can get access to their uh, to the to the sort of dishes their, that they're to their used braised to. food. Yes. Their quality of life. Yeah, yes. they understand that their quality of life matters. Yours might not, but theirs certainly does. So let's talk a little bit more about this stove issue because I think that it encapsulates so much. If we recall, those of you who sort of followed this at the beginning, we were told that one of the reasons that gas stoves needed to be phased out was, uh, I'm going to quote the Consumer Product Safety Commission, uh, they published an article finding that 12.7%, that's a very specific number, of childhood asthma cases linked to gas stove usage in households. Um, As best I can tell, a, that number is bullshit. B, there were no actual real studies done. C, their efforts to tie this to minorities and, and the sort of uh, health people with health challenges was also not scientifically based. Basically, this was just, you know, made up. Yeah, as you uh, relate, the, uh, one of the authors of the study, or at least the manager of the institute that produced the Rocky Mountain Institute, admitted to the Washington Examiner that uh, it was this is a summary of past studies, and it, was, it, quote, does not assume or estimate a causal relationship. Likewise, there was other research that was done uh, to justify this inquiry period uh, about banning natural gas hookups nationally that uh, suggested that it was unhealthful to use a gas range in a, quote, airtight room with clear plastic sheets sealing it. So yeah, if you've uh, if, if if you sealed up your room to do some uh, uh, I don't know uh, home renovation, don't cook in there. Good good advice. Not something you need uh, the uh, progressive technocrat to hold your hand and walk you through. Um, the the deployment of as you say emotional blackmail to justify this, suggesting that uh, minorities and people with disabilities and a at risk health defects they'll be hardest hit by this thing that affects all people universally, according to their own estimates, uh, that'll hit them more, uh, is just an effort to to blackmail you and back you into a corner so that you'll consent to their demands and subordinate, even reject rational thought around this sort of thing, because to do so, to engage in rationality, just simply rejects the the, uh, the urgency of our moment. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's hidebound, it's selfish, it's... Uh, conceded. And all this stuff is used to justify an effort to shut you up, to stop debate around this sort of thing. Because if they are, if, in, if debate is allowed, if it in, it's engaged and the public is engaged with it, what happens is what happens to the national, uh, to the national ban on, uh, on natural gas hookups. It disappears. It dies. And they can't have that. And you can't have that, frankly, because you don't know what's in your best interest. You need to be guided into your best interest, even manipulated into your best interest. It is as technocratic a progressive conceit as you can imagine. And it also condescends to to the public that they are supposedly trying to help. It doesn't sound like they like the public very much at all. Well, if these things are also great, why do they need to coerce us into using them? If electric cars are so awesome, you know, why do we need thousands of dollars in subsidies for consumers to buy them? I don't need a subsidy to uh, to encourage me to get an iPhone. Right. I'd like one. Though, <laughs> I, though I'd like one, too. Yes. Uh, but, you know, I mean, if stuff that's awesome, people just clamor for it. 
this stuff isn't better. It seems like what they're trying to do is force us in the name of this climate religion to, and, and we, I want to get into that too because you talk about this um, in, your, in your article about the new Puritans. But, uh, you know, why, if this stuff is so awesome, if electric cars are so great, why do I need a subsidy? If electric ranges are so awesome, why do I need to be forced uh, to, uh, to give up my gas? Yeah, and, and I'm not hostile to lithium-ion battery-powered technology, um, despite the fact that the strip mining practices in oh, Sub-Saharan yeah. Africa that we used to get it, you know, is a little dubious. But honestly, some of these things do jobs kind of well. They just do certain jobs not as well as gas-powered equipment. If you have a small lot, as I used to, electric-powered equipment is just fine. We'll get the job done just fine, and you don't need to pay for extra gasoline and, for and by the way, all the other chemicals that you now have to add to it to neutralize the ethanol content in that gasoline that the Biden administration approved, which will destroy your small two-stroke engine. That's not another story. Um, but, you know, some things just work better than others. What happens on the, on, when you get into this progressive mindset is that they reject the idea of comparative advantage and, and consumer preference in the idea that, yeah, maybe you need a gas-powered leaf blower to clear a, a giant plot but maybe you can do an electric push mower. It's the sort of thing that they, they find to be a parochial uh, uh, sort of uh, thought process that rejects our greater goal here. And which this, this leads us into the, the conceit that I write about in my book, um, The Rise of the New Puritans Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun, is there's a very deeply ingrained puritanical streak in both coalitions in America. We're all the... the uh, inheritors of this legacy. But it's one that believes that all sacrifice must be evenly and equally endured, that we're all in this together, that we have a collective responsibility to enjoy the benefits of society and to suffer its hardships. And if climate change is an existential threat, we are all compelled to endure some level of hardship, some level of shared sacrifice as part of our communal commitment to the creation and promotion of what what the Puritans would have re regarded as the establishment of a new Zion on Earth, what, what progressives believe is the promotion of the progressive project. This is our calling, and we all must be dedicated to it in some degree or fashion in order to justify our uh, the benefits that we enjoy in this earth, in this world. Yeah, we're going to end up down another rabbit hole because this is yet more evidence of the fact that when you know people stop believing in God, they search for alternative gods. It's not that they don't want to believe; it's that they just don't want to believe in you know the one in the Bible. But they're perfectly willing to believe the one you know that that Elon Musk is 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 well not anymore, but was taking care of, or that Al Gore told them about, or Greta Thunberg. It's just. Uh, it's it's exhausting. But I want to talk to you quickly before we before we really just descend into ranting, which Mark and I do too often, about electric cars. Because this is another element of this. I want to, again, and I want you to talk a little bit afterward about the strip mining and, and the impact that actually is necessary in order to build electric car batteries. But also, by the way, to build uh, windmills, because those also require uh, rare earths and, and particular components that need to be mined. But electric cars, are they really actually better for the environment than, than gas-powered cars, number one? And number two, if everybody is going to be on an electric car, how is our electrical grid going to stand up? Well, that's just it. I mean, I really can't speak to you about the statistics in relation to whether an electric car performs better than a gasoline-powered car. Uh, again, I'm not totally hostile 
to the idea of electric cars for particular purposes. If you do a lot of long range driving, it's probably not best for you. If you don't, maybe it is. But that's the sort of thing that is the result of consumer choice and individual preference and an individual assessment of their uh, material conditions that that bureaucrats simply cannot make for you. And the imposition of this upon you is only going to foment a backlash. Um, When it comes to the grid, yeah, it seems as though generally the grid has become sort of a secondary consideration for a particular sort that's advocating the electrification of anything. Yes, most of our energy mix comes from the, uh, the combustion of fossil fuels, which, by the way, is also where most of our heat-trapping emissions come from. The attack on uh, household appliances is designed to rid, uh, based on EPA estimates, the 13% of emissions that uh, contribute to the United States' total overall emissions picture. It is a fraction of a fraction of the problem that these uh, that environmental activists say they're attempting to address. And all of it pales in comparison to what we see abroad, places like China and India and other countries that are industrializing at a rapid rate and are combusting fossil fuels in order to generate the power that they need to industrialize. It is, it is an effort to – it's not justified by the statistics. It's not justified by the outputs that we can generate in this country and this country alone or even in the West. So you're left with what you have to concede is something that looks a lot more like the promotion of a certain type of lifestyle certain preferences, certain habits, certain behaviors that uh, progressive technocratic activists would like to see in the public and just doesn't see enough of and wants to cajole you into, uh, into, uh, pr- pr- into doing, to emulate them, to behave more like them, which they regard as virtuous behavior. And I, I'm continually drawn back to the puritanical uh, experience because this is very much a puritanical exercise. The demonstration of hardship, of enduring that kind of self-sacrifice, is something that we saw from puritanical societies uh, in the uh, 1500s and 1600s that demonstrates their godliness, their devotion and commitment, and the outward expression of that commitment that you can actually see and observe yourself and verify. Uh, That kind of visible sainthood is absolutely critical to the ascension into the church. And so you, too, must sacrifice. You, too, must suffer. For the cause, and there's only one way for us to tell that you're suffering for the cause. You have to wear it on your shirt. You have to wear it on your sleeves. The sweat on your brow is indicative of your commitment, your zealotry. And so, yeah, it has to be imposed on you whether you like it or not. Um, beyond that, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So, yes, as a spiritual commitment, I think that's the best way to explain the kind of behavior we're witnessing. So carbon neutrality is closest to godliness instead of cleanliness now? <laughs> I mean, it's better than nothing. I mean, like, it's a religion, but without the salvation at the end, because the world is ending, and there's nothing yeah, on the other re- side, right? Yeah, but less a religion than just a, a, a way of life, a total theory of societal organization. Of it. For Puritans, God was a part of it, but not the whole part of it. Most of it was the establishment of a social order with a uh, social hierarchy around uh, them and the oligarchy that uh, maintains that kind of order. And yeah, we see a lot of that today. So you start your article in, on the war on things that work by quoting AOC's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's chief of staff saying that about the, the interesting thing about the New Green Deal, it wasn't originally a climate thing at all. It was, in fact, a how do you change the entire economy thing. 
this is the pretense of the left. You know, Bill Buckley famously said, I'd rather be governed by the first 5,000 names in the Boston Telephone Directory than the faculty of Harvard College. You got a bunch of, uh, you know, know-it-alls who probably couldn't even get into Harvard who are trying to remake the entire economy and whatever image they're trying to come up with. And it's going to cause all sorts of unintended consequences that you would never face if you just let consumers decide. We're getting rid of gas-powered cars for electric cars. We're, we have achieved energy independence, and we're choosing a technology that's going to make us completely dependent on China, like all in the name of, of fighting climate change. How is, where is, there's no common sense in that. You're applying far too much rigor to the analysis of this sort of thing, <laughs> oh, Mark. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> they're they're not asking you to think, think too hard about I'm this. thinking. <laughs> That's the first problem. No, it has not. It has. It's. It's. Once you scratch the surface of it, yeah, it's. It's not very well justified by their own criteria that they set out. The metrics that they set out to judge the success of their proposals by. So it can't really be a thoughtful enterprise. The reaction that I got from this piece, which by the way was overwhelming, probably because it was Memorial Day weekend and very few people had anything other than to do than yell at me on Twitter. But a lot of them did it. A lot of them went decided to take Twitter and yell at Gas-powered uh, barbecues too. Right, so. as was as was I. Propane emissions streaming into the environment as I peek on my uh, my electric powered uh, lithium-ion powered battery phone. Um, but the reaction that I got was generally, and I mean like nine out of ten, was sometimes even in the same sentence. This isn't happening, and also it's good that it's happening. It is simultaneously. A figment of your imagination, a bizarre, paranoid, conspiratorial fantasy about progressive technocrats trying to come into your home and, and uh, remove the, uh, the gas-powered range from your house. And also, climate change is an existential threat, and we have to get rid of the gas-powered range in your house. This thought exists in the same person's head in the same sentence that they express. They do not see the contradiction in it because it is not a thoughtful exercise. It is a purely an expression of faith and conviction and an expression of faith and conviction in public to which other people must be privy because it's all part of the justification of their the, the phrase that I borrow from the Puritans book, um, their visible sainthood, the sacrifices that they have made along the way to become full congregants, full members of this social covenant of which we should all be a part, whether you want to or not. So I want to bring this back to politics because, you know, we do live in Washington and everything comes back to politics, apparently. What I fail to understand, I get it. You know, if you're Taylor Swift, you definitely want to be a supporter of better environmental policy while you fly yourself and your mother and your cat in your private plane from venue to venue to venue. I get it. I mean, that's great. If I had a private plane, maybe I too would have the luxury of being able to lecture others about how to be. But it seems to me that there is a huge disconnect between the elites of the, of the left who are the ones who are not simply lecturing us, because I, I, I don't, you know, let them talk, but who are actually stealthily trying to take every bit of, you know, every mod con away from us uh, in, the, in the coming years, uh, either by stealth or by force, and their constituents, who, because of course, as we've, as we've, I think, agreed and has been very well documented, these are 
hugely regressive plans. You can force a company into doing this, but you can damn well bet that that company isn't going to eat the cost. It's going to pass the cost on to its consumers, right? And so why is there no backlash on the left against these elites who are sort of smugly, puritanically trying to force these new norms, these new saintly norms on us? Well, I'm not of the left, so I can't delve into their imaginations and put words in their mouth. Um, but from the individual perspective, these individuals who are you know, gallivanting around the planet in private planes in order to proselytize for economic or environmental solutions to the climate problem, I think they would perceive themselves as the vanguard of a particular movement and a moment in history, and they have earned themselves indulgences. Uh, that allow them to use these tools in order to take those tools out of as many hands as possible. Um, so I don't think they perceive themselves as villains in the story. They would probably see themselves more as the uh, executors of uh, policies that will produce a better and brighter future. Uh, and for the individual progressive, you know, again, maybe it's a little speculative on my part and assumes a little bit of bad faith, but I don't think they're particularly perturbed by the idea that the public just doesn't see these costs and then we'll know they're happening. But they kind of think that's probably a good thing to pull the wool, the wool over the consumer's eyes and, you know, convince them that this is greedflation doing this to you, even if they know better, even if they know that companies are passing on the costs that they've that, the, that bureaucrats have imposed on these firms that are being passed on to the individual consumer. Maybe they know that. Maybe they don't. But if they do, I think they absolutely will have convinced themselves that it's a necessary fiction in order to get you to do what's best for you, because you don't know what's best for you. They do. When their plans succeed, they can't pass on the cost. I mean, like Ford Motor Company lost, I think, 3 or $4 billion on its EV unit uh, in the last two years. How did they make up for that money? They didn't just eat it. They raised the cost of gas-powered cars, of combustion engine cars. That's why they're so damn expensive. And what happens when they're not allowed to produce combustion engine cars anymore? Who's going to eat the costs of the of the EVs that nobody wants? No. Right, but what are these big multinationals going to do? Are they going to go out there with a, with an advertisement, a national advertisement, saying, look at what these bureaucrats are doing to you. They're making this more expensive. No, they have their own arrangements. They have their own people. They have their own tax schedules. They, they, they don't want to offend the bureaucrats who are uh, overseeing their operations and make their life that much harder. So nobody's going to say outright, what's happening here uh, for fear of uh, alienating and frustrating the very people on whom their their business model depends. We so see. yeah, there is something like a conspiracy of interest. We see that right now with Toyota. So the chairman of Toyota is under fire by these left-wing activists because he had the temerity to say that the world isn't ready for EVs and maybe hybrids are the best way to go where you still have an internal combustion engine. When the charge ends, you could still use that. And this was some sort of heresy and they're now trying to drive him out of his job. It's like, you're right, they're, they're not willing to fight back and look what they do to do to somebody when they do push back. And ultimately, if we were to control enough power to the grid to justify all these electrification fantasies. Uh, I mean, it would be a defensible proposition. Uh, I, I mean, right now, something as fanciful as fusion, you know, reliable consumer fusion that would make power unmeterably cheap um, is still some ways off. But the prospect of generating clean nuclear energy is not. Uh, and we are seeing new module, small module reactors come online, but not nearly the pace that we need to. And they're still retiring reactors in Europe. 
Yeah, because of this rid of all their nuclear reactors. They have gotten rid of all of right. them. Right. Yeah. This fantasy has, has, has been a, a, a catechism on the left for so long that it's going to take quite a, quite a while, I think, for folks to get over it. We do see some green shoots here, but it's not going to happen tomorrow. Um, but material abundance would do a, a lot for, uh, to advance the policy preferences and consumer preferences that they want to see widely adopted. While they're also waging a war on convenience, uh, they're also attacking the sort of uh, policies that would produce the conditions that they want to see manifest. So it is really a very self-defeating philosophy that you can only attribute to something like a, a spiritual crusade because it is so divorced from rationality. So exit question for me then. How do we fight back? I mean, I know that's a, almost an unanswerable question, but, you know, is it possible to fight back or are we sort of, you know, are we on an inexorable path toward this less efficient, less effective green economy or can we uh, can we do something about it? Well, I wish I had a silver, silver bullet to offer you. At the close of the particular article that we're talking about, I do recommend going out and voting your interests. But the only solution that I can offer and uh, that I offer in this particular uh, piece and in my book, The Rise of the New Puritan, is to laugh at these people, is to make mockery of it, to make fun of them. They are so self-serious that they cannot accept the idea that their policy preferences have made them into fastidious busybodies, caricatures that deserve to be mocked. There is no industry dedicated to doing it. There's no comedic uh, you know, enterprise out there that is lampooning these people who make fools of themselves on a semi-regular basis because they're so sensitive to it. Uh, with that leaves a lot of comedy fodder on the table. There's a lot of uh, un untapped veins of humor in our progressive politics that somebody should be taking the reins on. I do my best. I'm not a professional, but I do my best to illustrate some of the absurdity here and give you permission to laugh at it. And I hope more people will take up that charge. Well, one would hope, but you know, I, if only we lived in a country where you could change your government every few years, where there'd be new candidates out there who are trying <laughs> to, to lead, but huh, I guess not. <laughs> anyway, Noah, thank you very much. This, you know, I, I mean, honestly, I want to laugh at it all, but it's so, it, it, it makes you so angry first. It's so crazy, and all in this sort of smug, self-righteous delivery that just makes me want to walk up and punch someone in the face. Unfortunately, <laughs> only Mark and Clara are here, and I'm not allowed to do that in the office, my boss tells me. <laughs> but you are It's awesome. just best, best HR practices. Right? Exactly. She's, she slaps me verbally every day. There you go. <laughs> Thank you a ton. This was terrific. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. All right. Take care. What do you think, Danny? So I brought up politics at the end, and Noah, in very gentlemanly fashion, did not, as many of our guests will, didn't want to bite. But you know something? This is such a great campaign commercial. This is such a great campaign theme. And I know Ron DeSantis has been on this issue, but I got to tell you, you know, I'm sick and tired of hearing about trans stuff. That's fine. I'm sick and tired of hearing about, you know, what we need to do more or less of on Pride Month or prisons or whatever the hell it is, this actually is going to affect every single American's day-to-day -day life, literally, right? Your yeah. stove, you know, your weed whacker, your heating, your hot water, 
your job, your livelihood, your car, every single thing. Why, why is the right not making this the heart of the presidential oh, race for are. next year? I think they are. And I think it's all connected. It's the the rise of wokeness, woke ideology. This, this is, is absolutely liberal fascism. I'm sorry. I, okay. Well, I'm sorry. Well, I think wokeness is liberal fascism. It's, it's, it's all a, a part of the same whole, which is that the, the small elite in a distant capital want to tell us how to live our lives. They want to tell us what to teach our children. They're going to tell us what kind of stove we're going to do, use, what kind of what kind of car we're allowed to drive, what kind of is weed whacker we can do. It's all it's all connected to the battle against socialism because social that's what socialism is socialism is a small group of people telling the rest of us how to live instead of trusting the common sense wisdom of the american people to choose for themselves you know what i've got to get our late boss um uh, at the senate foreign relations committee admiral admiral james stance he gave me a book that he thought was you know it was no longer useful, but he thought I would like to have it. And he had this book from the 70s of Eastern European anti-government jokes, you know, jokes against communist sure. fascism, yeah. basically. And, you know, they were all of this. It was, you know, I went to buy I went to buy a new car. Remember this joke they told you? You know, he said they were going to deliver it to me, you know, on in 10 years uh, uh, on a Tuesday. And I told him that wasn't going to work. And he said, what do you mean? How can you possibly know that you're going to be busy in 10 years oh, no, no, and wait, two wait, weeks wait, wait. on let's, a Tuesday? Let's let, let's let Ronald Reagan tell the story. That this man, he laid down his money, and then the fellow he was in, that was in charge said to him, "Okay, come back in ten years and get your car." And he said, "Morning or afternoon?" <laughs> and and the fellow behind the counter said, "Well, ten years from now, what difference does it make?" And he said, "Well, the plumber's coming in the morning." <laughs> As expected, Ronald Reagan was telling it better than you did. Yes, but he's dead now, and I'm here. With <laughs> he lives my, in our hearts. I'm, but I'm alive here on the podcast with you. But it's full of these things. It's yeah. full of these stories. And the problem is we could start writing these jokes about the very lives that we're living, you know, about, about uh, as you say, who a woman is, what a teacher says you can't, what you can and cannot say. I mean, there used to be Seinfeld episodes about that, you know, Am I allowed to say this? I feel like we're not allowed to be having this conversation. And it was a joke on a sitcom. Now you're not allowed to be having this conversation. No, my favorite uh, joke, Reagan joke, other than the car joke, was uh, one Russian says to the other, uh, comrade, have we achieved full socialism yet? And he said, no, things can get much worse. <laughs> That's how I feel about the and, way our country is going right now. And yes, there, things can get much worse. And there you have it. Yep. Things can get much worse, and we're going to continue fighting really hard and ranting apparently pretty consistently from podcast to podcast uh, against this terrible trend. Because this is, you know something? Life should be, yes, it should be about meaning. Yes, it should be about your kids. But you should be allowed to have just a tiny bit of fun. You'd be allowed to go to a concert and not be told how to be, uh, how to turn on your sitcom TV and not be told how to be. It's as I said it before, it's exhausting. I just want to have fun. And you should be able to do what the hell you want with your tomato container. Exactly. Damn it. <laughs> I am going to do what I want with my tomato container. Not just that. You feel like you're engaging in minor acts of rebellion. Well, isn't that I'm nice? There's I'm a gonna... lot of rebellion going on, Daddy. People are getting sick and tired of this. There's a non-compliance movement, and I'm part of it. Mark is secretly putting his tomato container in the recycling as well. And we hope you are, too. Go for it. Stand up to the man. And we'll see you next week. <laughs> Take care.
Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.